Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy, and boy, oh, boy, have we got a program for you this morning. We've got so many interesting people in the studio. We've got another interesting person to chat to on the phones this morning. So it's, it's all happening right here. So uh, do stay tuned. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. First up, I have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. At least I think it's morning. It looked like night when I was coming down. <laughs> it's so dark. It is dark, yes. Yeah. Six o'clock is not the time for me to get up on a Sunday morning, I don't think, especially in the middle of winter. But anyhow, it's not, I don't think it's going to be a bad day. It looks all right out there. They say it's going to get rainier this afternoon, which is probably fine. But from a commercial nurseryman's point of view, as long as it stays dry until five... And then it can rain. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we've had a little bit of rain. It's been good. But I have to say, nowhere near enough. Yep. Uh, I dug a hole yesterday for something in the garden at the nursery that I was planting. And the nursery soil is really good, dark, rich mountain soil, that really gorgeous dark Mm. brown stuff. Lovely. And even that soil hadn't got the moisture down into it yet. I mean, at home, I expect it to be hydrophobic because we've got the big gum trees and all that sort of stuff that I'm working under and I've had to create soil and once that gets hydrophobic, it's just hopeless. And so I expect that only to be fairly shallowly damp yet. Mm. But I expected at the nursery for the moisture to have got down by now and it hasn't. So... um, Yes, I was planting a, a rare climber from Japan yesterday against the side fence, and lo and behold, it was dry down there. Right. So, a bit of a worry. But anyhow, especially this time of the year, you'd think by now we'd have moisture in the ground. Well, we you haven't. would. You really would. But yeah. I guess it was dry for so long, it's oh. going to take a while. For and, and we need really good rains, not necessarily overly heavy all at once, but we need constant rains over quite a time for it to break that. Mm. issue and get the moisture right down into the ground so mm. it'll all take time but uh, hopefully we'll have more rain to come and mm. uh, and things will be all right by the spring because they're starting to talk water restrictions already and so i'm starting to panic uh, yeah unfortunately yes. mm. I, I i too would would you be advising everyone to pull mulch aside from the plants uh look i would more of that yeah if you've got in. thick mulches down um and uh, uh and you've got the time and energy to pull it back and even uh, Sounds stupid to say this, but I wouldn't even hesitate to be doing a bit of hand watering around some of your your major and important plants uh, just to get some water down into their roots because even if it rains, that extra water you've put on will take that water down deeper. So it's not wasted water. Uh, You're actually breaking that hydrophobic. Uh, issue and when it does rain properly you will get the water down deeper so yeah I wouldn't be hesitating if you've got dry soil still as I have um, if you've got the time I'd be out there doing a bit of watering which sounds really naff No the, the other thing Stephen is that every every autumn we keep saying now is a great time to be planting so if you've put on new, in mm. new plantings you really need to be watering them to get them established. Oh, you do, because if the ground's dry around the roots, the poor things are just not going to move out. Mm. Um, and the interesting thing, when you plant a plant out of a pot in, in its nursery potting mix, when you do water it, 
uh, if the ground around it is dry, what happens is the water goes down through the root system of the plant because that potting mix is open and, and friable and what have you, um, but it doesn't necessarily go out into the soil around it. Um, so you've got to break that and get that moisture out into the surrounding soil as well. Um, otherwise, your poor thing's just not going to uh, settle in well. So, yeah, funnily enough, winter watering seems to be a thing. <laughs> It does. We shouldn't mm. be laughing. No, actually. it's it's a worry. But it uh, is a worry. We should be keeping an eye on things because the problem is you become blasé. Yep. Uh, it's cool weather. Everything looks all right uh, superficially. And so you're inclined to think, oh, well, it's fine now. We're in winter and everything's hunky-dory and everything's moist mm. and all that stuff. And it may not be. Mm. So there. Mm. It's about time I introduce the rest of the gang this morning. First up, a very good morning to A.B. Bishop. Morning, A.B. Hello, Pam. Hello, everybody. Fantastic to be here. What have you been up to? Oh, working up hard. To, I have been working hard, doing all sorts of things. I'm excited. I um, we've got a, probably about 40 mil of rain. Oh, good. Um, and I noticed that uh, Sugarloaf Reservoir is up one and a half percent. Okay. Which is sort of quite a lot, really. I think we're at about 49 percent now. Was so it was pretty it low. It was getting yeah. quite scary looking at it driving past. I was starting to be a bit worried, but. Uh, and, of course, because of all this lack of rain, there's been animals roving around everywhere and seen more than usual. Mm. We've um, had deer at our place for the oh, first time, no. yeah. um, which is it's really kind of quite sad. And um, it's, I mean, as we all know, the, the trouble that we have with rabbits at our place, but I'm um, very proud to admit that they haven't been eating the salvia lacantha, and which are absolutely gorgeous, growing a treat. And I've got the... Um, yeah, Lacantha Anthony Parker and one of one of the white ones, Velua White, um, next to each other, and they look terrific. And no one has touched them. They're growing fantastically. Hey, don't and speak I, too soon. No, no, no. <laughs> I've already spoken too soon because the deer came in and absolutely ripped them to shreds. Oh. So Venison the, and sage. The one, yes. <laughs> oh, totally. Absolutely. Ah, uh, couldn't help it. Absolutely, yeah. So that's... Um, very, very depressing, unfortunately. Yes. And it literally has just ripped them. You know, at least the wallaby will stand there and nibble something delicately. And, and, and the rabbits, too, to some extent. But it no, has, deer has, don't. No, they ripped them out of the pots. And, and then they jumped a small uh, little fence that I've got around some Coria dusky bells and trampled all through there and ripped them. I was oh. like, oh, I don't like you. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the word deer doesn't apply. It does, <laughs> doesn't. Not deer, deer. No. no it definitely doesn't. It definitely doesn't. So, no, that, that's been frustrating. But, yeah, the rain has been terrific. And um, as Stephen was talking about, you know, it's really terrific when you plant a plant, especially at this time of year when it's so dry, um, to really worry about the width of the um, hole that you're putting in rather than the depth. I mean, so many people come into the nursery and um, they tell me your plant's failed and we talk through the problem and invariably they've dug this massively deep hole thinking they have to worry about the depth and haven't worried about the width as much and essentially have created a pot in the ground. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it's all about creating that extra width for the plant. Mm. Loosening the soil. Absolutely. We have to also say a very good morning to Loretta Childs. Good morning, Loretta. Good morning, Pam. And you've been telling me off air that you've been having problems with kangaroos on oh, the road. Yeah, yeah no, I've, I've hit um, a few. And uh -oh. I had a really bad one recently. Uh, really shook us up. But that was late last year. But uh, once again, um, doing new plantings is driving me insane. I just finished planting a big frog pond area. 
and came down week that Friday, came in on Monday, and I'm thinking, what's what? There's things gone, and I mean gone, but they were ruse, absolutely down to stumps. Oh. And uh, uh, the owners are away at the moment, so I'm vigorously thinking what. I mean, I had a look at what they weren't touching. And uh, so there's things that I'm going to... Rep- I just won't have the beautiful, very soft lamandras and whatnot that I was planting, mm. which is pretty frustrating. Oh, it's very frustrating. Yes. Yeah. So because... I'm, and around the water, I just want... You know, you want that lovely softness and... Uh, yeah, so I'm sort of disappointed with that and will be racking my brains as to what to replace it with. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, at least you don't have to contend with elephants. <laughs> Elephants, no, true. <laughs> I always figure there's somebody worse off than me. At least I keep telling myself that. You know, so yeah. yes, I say yeah. that to my clients and they, when they're whinging about possums or yeah. whatever. Well, at least we haven't got elephants, I say, which doesn't go down terribly well, funnily enough. I don't understand why. Well, you would, you would have a year's supply of fertiliser yeah. if you had elephants. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that, yes. True. Yeah. Oh, dear. Never mind. We also must say a very good morning to Chloe. Um, Tom, oh, what am I talking about? Chloe Foster. <laughs> Hello, Chloe. Yes, that is my name. Hello, Pam. It's Sunday morning, so it is. Yeah, Chloe yeah, forgets it herself too. Yeah, so. I forget yeah. it too. It's um, it's amazing that we're all here and perky on a Sunday morning. So, but I think we all had rain this week, and gardeners yeah. get super excited when it's been raining. Oh yes. So yes. Yeah. Oh well, I, I, I yes and no, and and I mean I shouldn't say this, but when you're working with excavators, oh, um, yes. you know, you, we actually put off two days because it was just the thought that we're going to make more mess. Which you will, you've got to be an excavator. So, you you know, you're driving around with a five-tonne excavator. They really, you know, they're there. So we just stop work and thought we'll come back when it's, well, you know, this is the thing, a bit drier. I don't really want it to be a bit drier, but Mm. I have to work too. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah, that's a problem, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to get to some community announcement first up. Um, I've only got a couple today, but I think, AB, you've got one as well. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to you in a sec. Um, firstly, uh, the next uh, meeting of the um, uh, Keelor Plains uh, group have got their meeting coming up, and this is for anyone interested in Gardens for Wildlife. Um, you're cordially invited to attend a free talk at the Australian Plant Society Keelor Plains group this uh, Friday, Friday, June the 7th, 8 o'clock. Now, guest speakers are going to be Laura uh, Murnell, and uh, who's the project facilitator for Gardens for Wildlife Victoria, and Irene Kelly, who's co-founder of the Knox program. Now, the venue is the main hall. This is at Raleigh Road Activity Centre, 54 Raleigh Road in Maribyrnong. And uh, if you'd like more information, you can go to their website, which is apskeylawplains.org.au, or you can phone 933 Six three double two eight. That's nine double three six three double two eight. So that's coming up next Friday, eight o'clock at the uh, Raleigh Road Activity Centre, fifty four Raleigh Road, there in Maribyrnong. Now the other one that I have is the next uh, guided walk uh, down at Geelong Botanic Gardens, and. Um, This theme is winter in the garden, so uh, you can enjoy an exhilarating walk in the Geelong Botanic Gardens when deciduous trees have lost their leaves and the evergreen conifers reveal their grandeur. So uh, obviously looking at plenty of conifers on this walk. Now it's taking place next Sunday, 9th of June, 
two o'clock start. You meet your guide at the front steps of the Geelong Botanic Gardens and cost is a gold coin donation. AB, what do you have there? Ah, well, I just was going to talk about the um, City of Whitehorse are having a sustainability week. Uh, which started a couple of days ago, okay. and they've got a huge range of um, terrific events. I know some of them are booked out. Um, today I am speaking along with uh, Melissa King and um, a chap named uh, Duncan Cocking, who I haven't heard of before from um, uh, Root, Leaf and Fruit. Okay. Um, which is a landscaping company, yes, essentially about uh, growing uh, produce, uh, edible produce. Um, yes, yeah, so, and I will be talking about habitat. Um, but there's, yeah, so it's a sort of a bit of a super masterclass in a way. It goes for three hours from two till five p.m. at the Box Hill Town Hall, and it's a free event. Oh and, wow! Uh, yeah, but they've also got um, various things on. Um, for the next few days, um, I'm hoping to do an edible weeds walk with Adam Grubb, and that's All on right. Tuesday, um, which is at um, – it starts at the um, Ely um, Community Centre – Ely Park Community Centre, I think it is, in Blackburn South. And uh, that's, there's a few on. There's one up from 10 till 12, one from 1 till 3, and one from 3.45 till 5.15. I thought that would be terrific because, mm. um, I mean, we know there's lots of edible weeds, but it's being able to actually identify them so you don't uh, kill yourself. That's or right, you exactly. <laughs> yes. Useful. Was that hemlock or parsley? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you do want to kill your partner. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Whichever. Yeah. You well, can it's always handy to have some deadly nightshade around <laughs> just just on the yeah. off chance you We've need it. plenty of that. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't used it yet. <laughs> but, yeah, so there's a few things on. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to So, yeah, Melissa King is on before me from t- 2 o'clock. Then I'm on after her. Um, at, I think I'm on about quarter past three. And then Duncan's after me. So, okay. Yeah. Should be should be good. Yeah, and it's terrific that they've got this real focus on sustainability and they've had all sorts of talks and, you know, they've got talks about solar energy and talks about decluttering your home and, um, you know, living with less plastic, heaven forbid, and all those sorts of things. So, And and they're part of the Gardens for Wildlife uh, program that a lot of the councils have have taken on board and adopted. And uh, for those who don't know, the Gardens for Wildlife program is essentially a free service for um, residents they can become part of this program and have an expert come out and say what areas in the garden they could adjust to make it more wildlife friendly and to encourage more wildlife. Right. That's fantastic. It and is. here we were whinging about kangaroos, rabbits and deer. <laughs> yeah, now we're trying to attract them. <laughs> Give it the cute wildlife. Yeah, the cute. Yeah. Yes, those little blue wrens. Yeah, you know. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but for me, a big thing really is the insects. Like, I just think if we should be doing anything, we should be creating these insect gardens because they are the foundation of life, really, aren't they? Mm. I mean, even those, the birds and, and, and critters that are nectar feeders, they still use insects as a protein source to feed their young and also mm. to prop up their own diet. And mm. you, I drive around and I just see these these people where we are and they've got big blocks and everyone's so paranoid about bushfires 
and they clear the blocks and then ironically they have these huge piles um, you know waiting for this time of year when they're going to burn off essentially so they're just absolutely wrecking the habitat from mm. from that regard and we're mowing verges and and it's really quite depressing no, no surprise that the insect numbers are just yeah, how declining. many get squashed on your windscreen these days i can remember not many a, yeah, yeah no. i can remember as a kid when i first started driving you know during the summer months you'd end up with your windscreen all covered in dead mm. bugs yeah. now you hardly catch any that's exactly. right you know, so yeah. there's yeah. obviously yeah. A, a huge lessening of yep. uh, of six-legged critters. Mm. Yeah. Taxonomically, we don't the the insect world is so much less studied than the animal and mm. the plant world that we actually don't know what we've got, and mm. we've probably mm. already lost so much of mm. what we don't know. Mm. Is which is frightening. Out there. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It is yeah. It's bad enough to lose something you're aware of, but to yeah. have actually lost things you don't even know about. Mm. I mean, what could have been there that we could have made use of, or mm-hmm. uh, had some sort of enjoyment from, or whatever, and it's gone. Mm. Yep. yep, and yep. don't forget we need some of those those critters also for for pollination. Mm. Um, it's not just the bees that we need, but we need a lot of other insects mm. as well. So um, yeah, yeah, we really need to look after them. And I mean, when you think about it, honeybees—they're a feral species. Here, I mean, everyone mm. loves honeybees because, of course, we get honey from them. But essentially, they're feral and they're taking resources from our native bees, of which we have about Ooh, two thousand. Talk to the apiarists <laughs> that way. <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, but I mean, and the fact is, you're right, Pam, and. Wild pollinators, they actually pollinate better than honeybees do because they will get right into these flowers and and ferret around and move pollen from flower to flower. So they actually pollinate um, and they found that fruit and vegetables actually set better if you've got wild pollinators in the garden as well as honeybees. So, yeah, we'd we'd certainly need them. There you go. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, it's high time I opened up the uh, the lines to our listeners. If you'd like to uh, join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to speak to the team on air, we have Stephen, AB, Loretta and uh, Chloe in the studio. Do give us a call. The number is 94190155. Or this morning we have Doug on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Doug, 94198377. And while I'm mentioning uh, that number for Doug... Uh, we do happen to have a vacancy for one new person to join our phone team. Um, now, this is an absolutely crucial service or we don't go to air if we don't have someone manning the phones um, every Sunday morning. So, uh, unfortunately, our, our good friend Liz has uh, got herself a brand new job and uh, she won't be able to actually come in and help with the phones. But if you, if it's something you'd be interested in, um, we'd call on you once a month to, and we'd train you up. You don't need to know a thing about answering the phones. We'll train you, but we'd I love you to I thought it just be... meant picking it up and saying hello. No, <laughs> not quite. No, it's not that simple. <laughs> no, but it's not complicated either and it won't take you long to learn. So, uh, and we'd, we'd love to have you as part of our team. And, of course, you get to meet all the presenters when it's oh, your lucky turn you. to be on. And, and we usually have a lot of fun. That so, might not uh, be an incentive. No, it might not be, yeah. <laughs> If you'd like to, uh, to be a part of the show and and to learn the phones, do give Doug a call now and he'll take down your details and I'll get back to you later in the day. So that number to speak to Doug, and you can ask him because he does the phones, he knows all about it, you can ask him what's involved. Give him a call on 94198377. Okay, but in the meantime, uh, if you want to talk to the team, do give us a call on 94190155. 
Stephen, let's start. You've got a bit of a theme happening this yes. morning. Berries, yeah. berries, berries. Yes, lots of berries. <laughs> um, I actually started this theme yesterday on the ABC with Libby Gore uh, of late ornamental berries because I, f- I think they're really useful in the garden. I mean, the last of the autumn leaves is pretty well shed now. Um, your high winter flowers haven't really started. I mean, I haven't got a hellebore in flower. I haven't got any narcissus in flower. got lots of ornamental oxalis in flower, but that's another topic altogether. Mm-hmm. Um but there's a few plants that hold on to their berries or ripen their berries really late in the season, which I think are just fabulous for, for colour in the garden. And probably I should start with one that's almost um, so common people have forgot to talk about it, um, and that's the um, Nandina domestica, the sacred bamboo. It's not a bamboo. <laughs> I better start off by saying that. So its common name is a little bit um, misleading. Uh, and it's a flowering plant actually in the same family as Berberus. So it's in the Berberidaceae family. And it has lovely feathery, ferny leaves. And most of us are familiar with the dwarf ones. There are lots of dwarf Nandinas now. Once upon a time, there was just the smug little round one called <laughs> Nana. I, I, uh, I think there's... Four for every person in Australia. Yeah, well, yeah. it could well be, yeah. Um, and Nana was a plant I never bonded to because its leaves are all crinkly and it looks like it had a holiday at Chernobyl. Um, <laughs> but um, there's a whole range of new ones out there, um, Golf Tide, and I can't remember all the names of them. Anyhow, there's a whole range of new ones out there, some of which are quite pleasant. But the old-fashioned tall Nandina is being left behind, and I think it's actually the best plant because it has great verticality, so you can plant it in a quite narrow bed somewhere where you need something with a bit of height. It's soft and light and airy, and it's dense enough to screen something, but not so dense to be thick and heavy. So it always has this light airiness about it. Uh, the problem with straight Nandina domestica, though, is that um, it gets little white flowers and it gets very attractive berries, but if you just buy one labelled as Nandina domestica, you can't be sure of a good burying clone. So a lot of the clones that have been propagated over the years of Nandina domestica are not particularly heavy flowering and fruiting. Um, so unfortunately, I don't know, well, apart from me, I don't know any nurserymen that's actually growing named clones of tall-growing Nandina domestica. And I'm growing two at the moment. Um, one is a clone that was dis- developed or discovered in New Zealand many, many years ago uh, by Richmond Harrison, who had Harrison's Nursery in Palmerston North, and it's actually called Richmond. Um, and it's a really heavy-fruiting, red-fruited clone, and the berries are on it for months and months, almost all year round, actually. Mm. Uh, the next set of white flowers are coming out, and you've still got red berries on it. So it's a really, really useful plant. Uh, and the other one, which I imported a few years ago, uh, I think I bought it back from England on one of my trips years ago, uh, is a white-fruited clone um, called Fructio Elbow, uh, which is um, not as heavy-fruiting as Richmond, but the white berries are really different. And anything that doesn't have a red berry sort of stands out in the garden because it's an unusual colour for berries. So I quite like the white-fruited one. It also has a paler green leaf than the red-fruited one, so it stands out quite well in the shade. And they both grow to eventually around about two, two and a half metres tall uh, with these sort of bamboo-y canes, hence sacred bamboo. That's Mm -hmm. where it sort of seems to get its name from. Uh, And in really cold climates where you get lots and lots of frost, most of them will get quite pretty colours in their foliage during the winter months. So you'll get sort of reds and things through their leaves in the winter. Um, So I think Nandina domestica is well worth revisiting. I mean, it's almost indestructible. It's Mm. just such a tough shrub. Mm. Uh, It can 
be root bound in a pot on the patio and sitting there for years and still performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you can use it in some of the most difficult spots in a garden. Well, dry shade. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, and we're always struggling for dry shade things. Aren't yeah, they? and yeah, as our gardens get older, too, uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, when somebody says I want something colourful and dry shade, about the only thing people think of is clivias. Uh, and corias. Oh yeah, well yeah. some of the corias are quite good <laughs> Sorry, there as well. Stephen. Yeah. Well, although I have to say, I can lose corias in my dry soil. You're obviously not doing the right thing then. No, no, I've just got really dry soil. Um, uh, but, yeah, so there's not, a, there's not a huge palette of plants that will cope with that dry shade, um, particularly if they're going to do anything colourful. Um, yeah. And so Nandina domestica, I think, is a plant that should be revisited by people, but not necessarily all these little dwarf naff ones yeah. uh, and I might add the, the dwarf ones if they're going to get really good colour in the foliage tend to need to be out in the light if they're going to do it otherwise yeah. they tend to stay green they need to be in sun for yeah. that so you know so Nana and Golf Tide and whatever else all those other names are uh, actually it was funny a friend of mine sent me one that had a slightly goldishness to the leaf uh, and uh, uh, it didn't turn out to be anything particularly worthwhile, but he said, what would you name it if you if you were going to name it, if we were going to bring it out as a new cultivar? Um, and I decided it wasn't worth bringing out as a new cultivar, but it had a slightly yellowish look to the leaf, and there's, there's sort of a fair bit of sort of watery names with them because there's um, Moon Bay, Gulf Tide, all that sort of thing. And I said the obvious name for it would be Gold Coast. <laughs> <laughs> But we never bought it out, so it doesn't matter. But I think it would have been a perfect name for it. If it had been a really yellow-leafed Nandina, um, I think Gold Coast would have been perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, so the Nandinas, look at them again and, and go hunting. Uh, I mean, certainly I can help you with um, named clones. Uh, and I'm hoping that some other nurseries out there will sort of get on the bandwagon as well and, and start promoting the normal-sized Nandinas. With those red berries, I'm wondering, are they weedy at all? I've never had a seedling come up, ever. Yeah. Um, That's the other thing with Nandina, although it will sucker a little bit and you'll end up with Mm. thickets of it, um, it's never shown any tendency to be weedy. And, Mm. you know, we've had Nandina in Australia for probably 150 years, um, and I've never seen one come up in the garden from seed. I've certainly never seen one come up in the bush. Um, And the birds don't tend to eat the berries as a rule anyway, so even if the berries um, uh, dropped and could germinate, they're likely only to germinate quite close to the parent plant. Yes. So I don't see any weedy potential with Nandinas at all. I think yeah. they're very benign. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm just squeezing one of the fruit, and it, they actually look like peppercorns, yeah. but it's a, it's a fruit, and it's quite soft, and you think it would be attractive to birds. It is funny, and, and, and as far as I know, there's nothing particularly poisonous about them, as AB yep. puts it on her tongue. Yeah. <laughs> um, I recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and actually being in Berberidaceae, I mean, there's a couple of Berberus that have very delicious berries. Um, yeah. uh, Berberus vulgaris is a well-known fruit uh, in lots of uh, parts of Europe, um, and uh, uh, and the dried berries of that are delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, they're as good as any of your sort of... Uh, goji berries and all that sort of stuff. Um, so so there's quite a lot of edibility in the Berberidaceae family. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know why the birds leave it alone, but they obviously have some reason for not eating the fruit, yeah. which from a gardener's perspective is actually quite good mm-hmm. because 
you know, I don't mind sharing the fruit with the <laughs> wildlife, I have to say, but it would be nice if they actually did share. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. most of the time they don't. You yeah. know, you just get something looking gorgeous with yeah. berries all over it, yeah. and then the birds clean it up and it's all gone. Mm. Uh, in fact, I had a, an ornamental hawthorn in the garden for years, uh, uh, the tansy leaf hawthorn, which gets lovely big bright orangey red berries and grey foliage, and it's just the most beautiful little tree. But the berries never coloured because the rosellas and others came in and cleaned them out before they even got to a point where they coloured. And at the end of the day, when it, for some reason or another, it died, I think it actually drowned. It was near an end of a a septic line, and I think I actually drowned the tree in the end. Uh, But I didn't miss it because I didn't get the berries anyway, Mm. which was really sad. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so Nandina, the sacred bamboo, re-look at it. The dwarf ones might have their use in the garden, but I'm really fond of the bigger growing ones. I I think uh, my grandmother and my mother and I I bought a house 20-odd years ago, a 50s house, Mm. and it was there, and it's the the original domestica, and it's once again, it hasn't moved. It, yeah. it just yeah. stays in that one spot. The berries stay on it for so long. Yeah. You get a little bit of flower, yep. but it's growing hard up against gum trees. Yeah. Now, I mean, what grows mm-hmm. and, and is never watered hard up mm-hmm. against gum trees? Yeah. I think it's... Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it's a remarkable plant. And I just think the problem with some of these plants is they're so tough that they tend to become, people become blasé about yeah, them. Absolutely. They think, oh, that old thing, you know. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so they disregard some plants because they're really easy, you know, and, and uh, you know, keen gardeners, and I'm probably to blame as much as anybody, were out there trying to take on the challenge, you know, <laughs> so you want to take on that plant that, you know, oh, I'm going to grow some blue poppies, you know, I'm going to do something that I shouldn't be doing, which is fine, it's fun, um, but you certainly don't want to fill your garden up with challenges, you want to fill your garden up with things that can, to an extent, look after themselves, yep. um, and with global warming and everything else coming along, uh, the, t- the, the really tough plants are the things we're going to be able to fall back on uh, to do the jobs we need, yep. um, and uh, so I think we need to revisit some of these mm. plants. I think things like Nandina disappeared back in the sort of 1960s and early 70s when the Australian native plant push had its first little inroad which was a bit of a failure because everybody planted the wrong things and mm-hmm. they thought you didn't need to prune them. But, Correct. Uh, you know, so it ended up looking like a bit of scruffy old scrub. Yes, uh, Yeah, <laughs> and so, but at that point, if it wasn't native, you didn't plant it. And so some very useful plants actually mm. fell by the wayside because, well, they were politically incorrect at the time. Mm. And, mm. Uh, and because, you know, I mean, some tough things do become feral, and mm. so you do have to be aware of that. But Nandina never seems to have done that. So they also transplant really well. Yeah. Too. I've dug them up before and moved them, yeah. and they just keep living. Yeah, they, don't, they almost don't notice you've done it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, oh, you know, I've got a tickle. Yeah, oh, yes. I'm in a different location. Yeah, yeah, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're an almost foolproof mm. plant, and there aren't that many foolproof plants mm. in the garden, I have to say. Mm. You know, uh, Even some things that are considered to be as tough as aren't anywhere near as tough as something like a Nandina. Mm. So there you go, Nandina domestica. And as I said, I've got a cultivar with particularly good red fruit. And I might add, the piece I bought in is a newly developing panicle of fruit. Mm. So the fruit will get to about twice the size it is on this plant and a very rich red yeah. uh, by the time it fully ripens. And the one of the white that I bought in was the only one I had available and it's only got a few berries on it, but at least you can see that it 
there is a white berried form out there. Um, and I'd be interested to get some more. There's actually an amber buried form that I've seen on the net, uh, which looks Ooh. rather interesting, uh, sort of an orangey, sort of ambery colour. Um, but I don't think it's in Australia. I've certainly so you can have a Sydney Swans theme? Or he, you can have he, a has. Like <laughs> he has. Yeah, you can have a tra- yes. yes, it is already Sydney is Swans. It already is, is, is yeah. in here today. There's yeah. just red and white berries everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of working if you're a Sydney Swans fan, although I'm not sure Seven about... Melbourne, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about football theming your garden. I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, I, it has been done before. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, it has, has been done before. And you could have gnomes in football colours. Oh, and yes. Yes, all that sort of stuff. So that could be interesting. That's my, that's my dad's contribution to the garden. Is it? Gnomes. Yeah, there's a Melbourne uh, gnome at the front oh, of the really? Oh, really? <laughs> oh, goodness me. Uh, so you don't own your parents anymore? No. Then. No, no, I divorced them. No. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, no, yeah. it makes me chuckle when I see the notes. Yeah. So oh, look, bit. sometimes a bit of humour in a garden is yes. good, especially if the person who's done it has a sense of the irony of what they've done. Yes. You know, if people take it really seriously, then you start to wonder. There is no seriousness of the gnome in our garden. Yeah, well, that's right. It's like the, <laughs> the people with the pink flamingo or the, yes. or the Neville the Aboriginal standing. Oh, well, gosh. That, actually, there's one in Macedon still, as really? far as I know, a Neville with a kangaroo. Good heavens. In concrete, standing wow. next to each other. Okay. Uh, right in the centre of a lawn. <laughs> and and they paint them to oh. make them stay nice and neat and yeah yeah and uh, paint them uh, with a bit of kill rust or something no no they're they're concrete so they oh, actually God, paint yeah. them yeah with with paint you know so Neville's a good shade of brown um, with his little lap lap on and his spear and it's so politically incorrect and dreadful um, but you can't help but laugh at it when you mm. go down the street because it was one of those things that was done mm. you know it wasn't that long ago when well remember Kingswood Country the, the oh, program yes. on the television they had their Neville yes. um, and uh, yeah it was completely politically incorrect and all those things have sort of disappeared and so when you do see one it does give you a wry smile mm. that somebody's kept them going. Chloe, <laughs> <laughs> quite by chance, you seem to have brought in some berries. I brought in berries too. Oh, how did that happen? Oh, it's just so magical. Yeah. We didn't even talk about no, this. No, no, we, we haven't been ringing each other no, and saying, no. what are you doing? Okay. No. <laughs> I have an extremely large lily pilly tree in the yeah. garden. It's Syzygium, whatever the... What's the general? Australis. Probably Australis, yeah. yes. Um, bears the most insane amount of fruit every single mm. year. The the birds actually don't go ballistic for it. Like no. The whole tree is completely covered in these really large droops of berries. And they're a wonderful violety purple colour. They color. are a beautiful <laughs> colour. And um, I usually I eat them as I walk past. They're actually really yummy. They've got mm. a sort of cinnamony taste mm-hmm. to them. Um, but the... I mean, the, the birds make a little bit of a mess of it, but they haven't totally mm. annihilated them. Like, no. there is so much food on this tree for the birds at the moment, and they're not touching it that much. Mm. The possums, on buggers. the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> what about the possums? Oh, the possums love it. Yeah. 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 I, um, I put a photo on my Instagram a few weeks ago. That I had some. I was sitting in the front living room and where the, near where the tree is, and I hear this bang, 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 bang. And there's the, I look out the front window and there's these possums doing a trapeze down the power <laughs> yeah. lines to my roof. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go out and have a look at them. So I ran outside and they saw me, took one jump from the power line. It was like a, um, a hop, step and jump on the roof and then bang into the tree. And I just hear this rustling yeah. and berries dropping to the ground. <laughs> And I thought, oh, I'll try to take a photo. I want to see what it is. And I took a photo, went back inside, had a look at it. There were two giant possum, uh, two sets of possum eyes beaming up at me through this photo. Yeah. And 
just they were going to have a great time that <laughs> yeah, night. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They'll probably get drunk on them or something. Oh, probably. Yeah. 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 But this this tree is absolutely huge and absolutely laden with these. They are a beautiful berries. thing. They're not easy to grow things under though. Are oh they? no, there's nothing grows yeah, under. Yeah, because it. it's so but matty the root yeah. system on Sicilian. Yeah. Um, not even the weedy lawn grows underneath no, it. No. Um, it's very it's very compact underneath. Oh, like I haven't had a go. I haven't been in the house very long, but I haven't had a go at trying to plant anything mm. underneath. I've got there. the plant for you. Oh, maybe we should put an andina. <laughs> you could Ooh, put an andina one. in. You no. could. You could try an andina. Clashing, clashing yeah, colours Oh, come on now. In the winter, wouldn't you not go bad. for red not and purple? Bad. Yeah, it's a bit well, psychedelic, but you it know. It's a bit psychedelic. Yeah, mm. but um, yeah, the plant I've got here is one of the ruscus, the butcher's brooms. Oh. And this is a hermaphrodite form. Most people go spend their whole lives trying to find a boy and a girl ruscus so that they can get the berries on the female ruscus. I raised this one from seed that I got years ago from England, uh, from Christopher Lloyd's Great Dixter Garden, and it's a hermaphrodite form, so it fruits on its own. And you get these big red berries, and the berries actually sit in the middle of the leaf-like oh. cladode. Um, so, oh, because that's how ruscus when they do flower. That's brilliant. Yeah, mm. yeah. So the, the yeah. berry sits in the middle of what looks like a leaf. Oh, that's really cute. We should take a photo and send it through to Liz. Oh, well, I've already sent a picture of oh, that cool. to Liz, so it will be up yeah. on the Facebook oh, page. Oh, that's um, amazing. And ruscus will grow in the driest, darkest, root-infested yes. this, this shade you they're can find. They're a dry shade plant. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And they're also edible, uh, not the berries. So don't shove that in your mouth. What part oh. of ruscus is edible? The new shoots when they come through the ground. Oh, really? Uh, in, in Italy, they call it wild asparagus. Mm. Oh. So you can pick the young shoots when they're coming through the ground, when they're nice and soft. And, I mean, you'd need quite a bit of ruscus growing in your garden to make a meal of it. <laughs> um, but I regularly get Italians and Greeks coming in looking for it mm. um, because uh, they want to grow some uh, to take them back to their childhood in the mm. mountains of Greece or Italy uh, where they used to go out and collect wild asparagus, as they call it. Because oh. it is in the spa- asparagaceae family. Okay. Uh, so it's in the same family and apparently tastes just like asparagus. I've, I've got to a point now where I've got quite large large masses of ruscus in the garden at home. So I'm very tempted to have a crack at it, um, perhaps next spring when it's sending yeah. up its new shoots, if I remember, mm. uh, and at least have a meal uh, yeah. and see how it all works. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think the ruscus is a fabulous plant. And, look, in the non-fruiting male and female forms, it still makes a good textural plant in that dreadfully root-infested shade. Mm. If I had a big conifer mm. on a bank uh, where I couldn't water anything and I wanted to cover the bank with something the plant of choice would be ruscus. Mm. And I have to say, I've never had it show any particular tendency to weediness, uh, even when I've got a fruiting form like this one. And even when it does send up the little suckers. Yeah, uh, because it just clumps. It never runs. So you just end up with this fat clump. Um, And, of course, if you end up with a uh, non-hermaphrodite form... Uh, and you just keep dividing the same plant. It will never fruit, so therefore it can never self-seed and yeah. can never take off, but it's not quite as ornamental. Uh, the hermaphrodite form, I might add, only grows to about 30 centimetres yeah. tall. So it's quite a short one, and it makes a little round tub. And this one I took off a plant that's growing at the base, in the right at the base of the trunk of a huge big old contorted willow. Mm-hmm. And it's growing in amongst the roots of that. And it's perfectly happy. Do they grow well in containers? Yeah, yeah. Ruscus are fine in pots, and and like a lot of these sort of things, they could be sitting in an old jam tin for years mm. without any care and attention and root bound as bilio, mm. and still looking green and and fresh and mm. healthy. And I might add, the foliage of these is fantastic for floral work. So you pick stems of it, yeah. and it lasts and lasts and lasts in water. So if you're looking for some good 
foliage for floral work, you could do a lot worse than using ruscus. It's slightly prickly, so when you're handling it, um, you've got to handle it with a little bit of Some care. Some big stems of that would look beautiful in a you know really tall vase. Oh yeah, ages. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's lovely and stiff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, that very yeah, structural. It's, it's a great plant. Yeah, so right. ruscus, there's only a couple of species in the country. Um, uh, it's a small genus. I think there's only probably three or four species anyway. Yeah. Uh, and there's one or two selections lurking around, like this um, hermaphrodite form of Ruscus aculeatus. Um, and they are all fantastic in that dreadful dry shade. And I saw quite a lot of it being grown, not this particular one, but uh, one of the larger clad-odoured forms, uh, when we were in Morocco. Uh, saw lots of it being used in, in municipal gardens and in dark, shady corners and stuff. And <laughs> Dark, shady corners of Morocco. Oh, yes. You'd be surprised <laughs> how many dark, shady corners there are, uh, especially in the souks. Um, but, um, yeah, so ruscus, there's the plant that you could grow under your syzygium. Maybe. Yeah. I just popped a berry open, and it, I thought I was going to get it in my face like you would when you pop a cherry tomato. Yeah. They're very um, juicy. Yeah, but they're not. there's not a lot of liquid. No, no, and I popped mm. it open. like There's mm. mainly seed in there. Yeah. There's hardly any. Um, there's yeah. hardly any and flesh. the birds never seem to bother it. They yeah. never seem to eat it. They and obviously the seeds aren't weedy. No, it doesn't yeah. seem to be. I mean, I raise it from seed, yep. but I have to say the, this form is incredibly slow. It takes about 18 months to germinate, mm. uh, wow. and it takes about two years to get something up that's sort of only sort of three or four inches wow, tall in the old measurement. Okay. So it takes quite a long time to get a good-sized plant. Yep. But things that are going to grow in dreadfully dry, dark shade, in general, aren't particularly fast-growing no. plants. They just sit there and they yep, just slowly, yeah. steadily do their thing. Yep. Yeah, yep. Uh, They're not going to be vigorous mm. things because they've got to cope with virtually no light uh, and no moisture yep. and often root-infested and poor soils. Very compacted uh, soils. And um, so they just sit there and just slowly over a yeah. period of time do their thing. Yeah. So well, the lily peel is the same germination-wise. Like, there's a bazillion um, berries that come off this every year, and there's never been any little um, mm. seedlings that have popped up. Yeah. Um, and you don't really find lily pillies to be a weedy sort of species as well. But the berries on here taste nice. Do yeah. Does anyone yeah, want well, a little snack? I, 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 I wouldn't eat your ruscus berries, though. <laughs> no, I, think I know. They're no. going to taste particularly good. So there <laughs> you go. So it smelt quite tart. That led into a different direction. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, uh, we are uh, running through until 9.15. If you'd like to join in the discussion, uh, the number is 94190155. Um, AB, let's go to you because you've brought in a whole oh. heap of plants. Let's, let's start with one. Oops. <laughs> yeah, be careful <laughs> with those headphones. Head <laughs> Oops. Oh, well, I have brought in a whole sort of uh, wildlife theme of plants because I am doing the talk this afternoon straight after here. Oh, well, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, this so is I've got all a, for your talk. Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> I've got a carload full of plants, and this is um, a, another... Oh, oh, very, very prickly one very uh, that I often say to Evan at, uh, at the nursery where I'm working that I need danger money for working with. Yeah. Um, it's Bessaria spinosa. Ah, right. And it's, for me, it's one of those absolute power plants in terms of habitat uh, because it not only uh, provides a terrifically safe haven for the little birds um, because it's very, very prickly, it's quite dense, it ends up forming a sort of a shrubby tree. Uh, I mean, it can get up to 10 metres. I've actually never seen never it seen 10 metres. No, yeah, I sort of think um, of it as three or four metres. Yeah, mostly. yeah, 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 but very dense. And, um, yeah, so it's one of these plants, the 
from a habitat point of view, terrific for the small birds, but then it will be absolutely massed with sort of creamy white scented flowers that the insects go absolutely crazy for. I don't know, Pam, you probably have it around you as well. I mean, it, it is a plant that's grown over much of eastern Australia yeah, we all have the it way around up. Macedon as well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's native it's, up our way. Yeah, yeah, it's indigenous to a huge um, area around Australia. And what's really interesting is, of course, it's the um, particular species that's associated with the Eltham copper butterfly. Exactly. So the larvae of that feed solely on this plant, and the larvae... They are also associated with a particular species of ant. And um, every day the ants uh, usher the larvae up the tree to feed in safety and then they usher them back down um, into the safety of the roots it's overnight. A, it's a great oh, story. It's it is a it relationship. Is a, but what I've also found is, and um, we've got something like oh, over 7,000 species of ants in Australia, which, you, you know, sort of blows your mind sometimes mm. really, doesn't it? But the whole way up the East Coast, um, this plant is associated with different, um, the larvae, of different butterflies that feed solely on this particular plant and they're also associated with a different species of ant, like just one mm. species that, that these butterflies are associated with. And so this one plant and, I mean, anyone who's ever taken photos of it just knows it's absolutely, it'll be covered with insects. Mm. Yeah. It, you know, it really is one of the um, super plants in terms of habitat. Um, that along with uh, Themida triandra, which is the kangaroo grass, which is um, the, the, I think there's larvae of something like 15 species of butterfly alone which feed on the Themida. And um, so to me, they are two of the real power plants in terms of habitat. But uh, yeah, so the Bessarius spinosa, it'll be covered in um, small, dainty white flowers that absolutely look fantastic. It looks like the whole bush is covered in snow. Um, it'll be so massive. And then followed by these small papery or fruits obviously next and then mm. followed by these little um, papery seeds which the um, yeah various parrots and stuff love so it's when it's in flower I always look I have to look twice go, oh what's that in flower oh it's, yeah it's yeah and, and it's the, just stunning the seeds of it are beautiful as yeah, well they're, you they're know they're really brown and papery, papery and, yeah. yeah and there's heaps of them yeah so it's not super it's not weedy yeah, so so for me, I just think that is one of the power plants in terms of wildlife. Yeah, yeah. And, and that relationship that we talked of earlier about what we're losing mm. um, in the way of insect world. Yeah. So you know what? That's a crucial plant. It is. Yeah. Whole habitat cycle. A absolutely. Mm. Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, we've been joined online by uh, Jim Fogarty. And uh, Jim, of course, is an award-winning landscape designer. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Pam. Good to speak to you. And, uh, yeah, I must uh, quickly zip around the studio for you, as well as Stephen Ryan. We've got A.B. Bishop, we've got Loretta Childs, and we've got uh, Chloe Foster in the studio. So we've got a whole heap of people in here this morning. It sounds like a jury. Look out. We're judging you now, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Do a good job. <laughs> Now, Jim, the, the whole reason we wanted to talk to you is because 
Last year, uh, we did we did have a chat to you about um, a proposed uh, garden tour you were going to take, um, which was all about summer garden masterpieces of England. Now that that trip has been delayed, but happily it's all going to take place um, June, July uh, of next year, and it's going to include some of the most amazing gardens. So I really want you to try and and uh, give listeners an idea of just what the tour involves. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we've always looked to English garden designers for inspiration, but uh, what's been happening the last sort of 10, 15 years is they're looking outside England to countries like South Africa, Australia uh, and America as to what, you know, what's going on out in the world. And so garden design in England is changing, and it's changing because it's becoming more global, but also because of climate change and dealing with dry-tolerant gardening, as they have to now in England. Um, so, so what this tour is about is actually going to see what this movement is, what this new movement, what the contemporary designers are doing, what the changes are. Um, whilst we're going to see some of the old classic gardens like Hidcote and Sissinghurst uh, and Great Dixter, we're going to explore this sort of very contemporary style of gardens and in many ways very naturalistic. Um, using a lot of perennials and grasses and things like that. But it, it's something that I think resonates a bit with uh, Australian gardeners because uh, it's very much picking up on the natural landscape. So it's something I think is very exciting. Mm. And you actually talk about ending up the tour with a bang. You actually go to uh, RHS Hampton Court Palace Flower Show and end with the fireworks in the evening. So you can't get much better than that. <laughs> no, no, and, and you're right because, I mean, a lot of... Tours traditionally that go to England will visit the Chelsea Flower Show, but if, and Chelsea's a fantastic show, but it can often be quite cold, and it's climatically often it's a little bit too early for spring flowering. Um, so this, uh, because we're visiting Hampton Court and we're going to see a lot of these perennial gardens, we're able to go in the summer period. So it'll be uh, hopefully very pleasant weather, quite warm, and sometimes very hot, in fact. Um, but we'll see completely different aspect to. English gardens and what, than what you'd see on the spring tours. So it's a completely different tour altogether. Um, well, the other thing, talking about uh, Hampton Court, you're actually going to be visiting um, some of the nurseries that actually raise these uh, flowers for the, the display gardens, aren't you? We are. So I've exhibited both Chelsea Flower Show and Hampton Court with uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria and uh, obviously befriended one of the, the growing nurseries, a gentleman by the name of Mark Straver from Hortus Loci Nursery. And he supplies a lot of the big gardens at Chelsea and Hampton Court. So we're going to sort of get a bit of a behind-the-scenes tour of his growing nursery and just sort of see what, it, what goes into the preparation of a lot of these plants that you see at shows because it's extraordinary the amount of effort that goes into them and, and how they buy them grow them on, pot them up, prune them, and try to push them into flowering, sometimes out of season even. Mm, mm. No, it's incredible the, the, the work they do. Listen, Jim, tell us a little bit more about um, Tom Stewart-Smith. Now, he's one of the designers. You're going to be seeing several of his gardens, and and I didn't know much about him, so I actually uh, Googled and had a look at some photos of some of his gardens. They are stunning. No, they're absolutely amazing. So, I mean, Tom's obviously, he's been around for, for years. He's exhibited Chelsea several times. He's won many gold medals and best in shows. Um, he's got a, a massive pedigree in the UK, so he's very, very well regarded over there. 
Um, so we're seeing about six of his gardens, and we're actually... Uh, have the opportunity. We're having lunch in his home garden, which will be extraordinary too. So, um, so we're, we're, we're really sort of experiencing uh, the inner core of, of some of these gardens and the garden designers in meeting a lot of designers. We're also going to spend a morning with Andy Sturgeon, who's a very uh, good friend of mine. Andy actually just recently won Best in Show at Chelsea Flower Show. I think it's the third time he's won Best in Show there now. So. Wow. Um, you know, part, part of it's not just seeing the gardens, but it's also meeting some of the people behind the gardens and, and really, really, you know, as I say, getting a, a, a serious experience out of uh, what goes into creating and what, what the inspiration is to, to designing some of these gardens. Mm. And, and I believe you're even having tea in, at Highgrove House. Uh, we are, yes. And, and the other thing which I'm quite excited about, and this is my idea, is we're visiting bon, uh, Bombay Sapphire Gin Distillery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad to see you taking it to a, a, a different level of horticulture. Well, it does. <laughs> I mean, it, it's all about botanicals. So yes, yes, exactly. It ticks all those boxes. There. Yeah, fantastic, Jim. <laughs> you know, botanicals and entertainment, that's what yeah. garden tours are all about, aren't they? Jim, getting, getting back to uh, some of these uh, more contemporary gardens you're going to be visiting, um, although we're, we're, we're calling them contemporary, and they are in compared to, to some of the classical gardens you'll be visiting, but it doesn't mean they're devoid of um, colour and flowers. I mean, some of Tom's gardens are so full of perennials and grasses. They just, it's, it's, it's like a, a waving um, meadow of, of, of colour. No, you're absolutely right. And in some ways, it's like a living painting. I mean, we're going to see uh, gardens by Piet Udoff as well. And Piet's got quite a global reputation at the moment. But it's, it's seriously, yeah, like walking into a living painting. It's more about artwork almost than, than, uh, than just creating gardens. So it, it's this whole sense of the third dimension and being able to walk into a living painting. And that is something I think it evokes a lot of emotion out of people. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about the connection between gardening and, and mental health nowadays. So um, this is something that, you know, I'm very excited to see how the the, the uh, clients on the tour will respond to actually entering some of these gardens because I think it will evoke a lot of emotion. Mm, mm. But what, what I love so much is that people are getting the opportunity to not only um, meet some of these designers walk through and experience their gardens, but then they have the opportunity to see some of these classic gardens as a contrast of what went before. So, I mean, you're going to some of the really great gardens like um, Hidcote, as you mentioned, Great Dixter, um, Sissinghurst, um, you know, just, just a wonderful comparison of, of the inspiration that's gone before and then of the people that are taking up the challenge now. Yeah, I, th I think it's really important to see where English Garden Design was and where it's going now. So, you know, there will be a connection. I'm sure there'll be a lot of references and a lot of similar plants and things like that, but it's, it's more about just the way they're using them and, and, and maybe they're picking the, the eyes out of plants, uh, for instance, that will grow better in a dry climate and won't need as much watering as, as some other plants. Because uh, the UK suffers pretty severe drought. We, we sort of take it for granted that... We're one of the only countries here that, that have to deal with it. But the UK are now having to garden around drought-tolerant dry conditions because their water reserves are running dry often. Mm, mm. I mean, I, I think all over the world people are going to have to rethink what plants they, they are putting into their designs. 
They are, yeah, and, and it's funny, in the UK, they're even starting to use some Australian plants. So you're starting to see Australian plants being used more and more in, in planting. <laughs> There's stuff. arms going up here, Jim. <laughs> yeah. People going, yay, yay, quietly, yes. <laughs> Although I have to say, uh, having been to England quite some times, uh, or quite many times, uh, to see you're Austra- always travelling. You, yeah, I, I know. Oh. I, well, hopefully I'm off to Madagascar towards the end of this year to take a oh. tour for the same company you're working with. But oh, that's um, terrible. It o- always trip. strikes me as odd when I go into a, a, a sort of what I would see as a classical English style of garden and there's a eucalypt growing in the middle of it. Yeah, it it's just, funny, isn't it? It looks weird. <laughs> yeah, one of the visits, Jim, that I, I think it was at Sissinghurst that I went to and it was in December a few years ago and they had tree ferns, um, Dixonia Antarctica, in the garden, and they were all wrapped up with, uh, with frost cloth. And I just felt really sorry for them. I wanted to bring them home. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting, because the tree ferns are in, in Europe now are extremely trendy. <clears throat> so it's funny how, um, you know, Australian plants are cropping up every now and then in, in design schemes, and, and people don't really, at first glance, realise they're from Australia. I remember... When we were at Hampton Court, we had the native hibiscus, the Eleogyne, uh in, in the garden. People just couldn't believe that was, it was an Australian plant because it actually looks very European mm, and very yes, pretty yes. and very feminine. I love those plants that people get confused about that don't look like a native. Yeah. Mm. You're like, oh, yeah. it actually yeah, looks show pretty. Them a, show them a, an Illawarra flame tree when it's young yeah. and see if they think that's a native plant. Mm. Um, it's a, so tropical looking and, mm. you know, so yeah, completely... For them, it's extremely exotic, isn't it? Yeah, well, oh, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Jim, it's a 15-day it's a garden tour. Um, it is taking place next year, so people do have time to uh, get their act together. And save the, save the money. Save up the money, <laughs> make sure their passports are in order. But it's actually um, starting 25th of June, running through to the 9th of July That's of right. next year. Um, but what people do need to do now is, um, if they think they're at all interested in going along, um, the, the tour, of course, is being run by Australians studying abroad, which is a tour that um, I've travelled with many times. Stephen leads tours with them. Uh, They're a fantastic tour company. Um, They never make you pack up um, every day, you know. You're spending at least three nights, I see, in each location virtually. Um, So it's... And and then you you spread out and and visit your gardens from that same... um, Hotel room, so it's 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 very very easy travelling. I find with uh, with ASA, uh, but people do need to. If you're at all interested, jump online, um, type in Australian studying abroad, and have a look at uh, read that. You can actually download the full itinerary of mm-hmm. the tour, and uh, then if you do think you're interested, you can uh, at least give them a call and. So, Tell them of an expression of interest to uh, to tour with you for next year because I'm I'm sure the places for this tour are going to fill very very quickly um, once word gets out. So uh, all the best with it, Jim. Oh, and, thanks, uh, and it's, I mean it's exactly right what you're saying. The thing that I found, especially with developing this tour with them, is the amount of work that goes into detailing the schedule of the tour. Um, you know, we see so many gardens, and I know all their tours are jam packed with experiences and seeing things that the normal punter doesn't really get to see off the street. Um, but I'm sure Stephen and Pam, you would agree, having done a lot of these tours, 
the, the ultimate important thing, though, is have a lot of fun, and, and that's, I think, something that uh, very well covered with ASA Tours, and I don't mind the odd bit of sarcastic banter myself, so I'm very much... <laughs> I thought that was part of the job description. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, um, absolutely, Jim, and, and as you mentioned, uh, you will get experiences, you'll see gardens that aren't normally open to the public at all, you'll get experiences like... Um, like um, meals in, in the gardens, in private gardens, that you could never do if you travelled on your own. So um, I heartily recommend it. So uh, as I say, jump on the line, have a look for yourselves, download the, uh, the itinerary, and I'm sure that people are going to be absolutely fascinated. You know one already, Stephen, who's mm. itching to go, don't you? Yes, I do. Well, I wouldn't mind going on Stephen's tour one day. So. Yeah, well, come to Madagascar with me. I want to film my Madagascan tour because I think that's going to be a, a great deal of fun. Oh, I think that'd be amazing, actually. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jim, for talking uh, with us this morning about it all and, and all the best. And as I say, listeners, if you're at all interested, do have a look and consider going because this is going to be an amazing tour. Thanks, Pam. And, and finally, what's the uh, verdict? Guilty or not guilty? Uh, probably guilty. <laughs> <laughs> have a great day. Everyone. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, Jim. Right. Bye, Bye, Jim. Bye. Now, that, uh, that number again, if you'd like to talk to us, you, our listeners out there, we would love to hear from you this morning. We've got uh, Stephen Ryan, A.B. Bishop, Loretta Childs and uh, Chloe Foster all in the studio. So uh, do give us a call this morning. The number is 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Doug on the outside line, 94198377. AB, let's go with another plant. Oh, okay. Oh, you always get me, Pam. I've got to take Why my headphones off again. You meant to think ahead. Do you want, some, think? Do you want some elevator music or yeah. something? Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> um, well, I've brought across two plants because I'll talk of them uh, together because they're sort of relevant. Um, the two plants I have with me, they're, they're both grevilleas. Um, and one of them is more suited to, I suppose, the larger honey-eating birds, and one of them is more suited to the smaller honey-eating birds. So the two I have with me are Grevillea peaches and cream, um, which a lot of people will know. It's a terrific uh, sort of largish shrub, maybe one and a half, two metres high and, and wide, maybe even a little bit wider. Um, and it will be covered in uh, the large flowered grevilleas, so the, the Queensland style grevilleas. It's um, a cross between Banksii, which is a Queensland one, and uh, Bipinetta fida, which is one from West Australia. Which is the common cross which for it, a lot of those large flowers. It is. That's exactly right. So there's Robin Gordon, they're superb. And that was sort of the first, new, wasn't it? Yeah. Robin, Robin Gordon. Gordon. Was, that's yeah. right. And yeah. Sylvia as well. Yeah, beautiful. yeah, exactly. And that, they're all really prolific flowers. And the, the thing about these ones is they hold their really large flowers on the ends of the stems. And uh, so they're terrific for the larger honey-eating birds, which will come in and feed on them. Um, and the, the second one that I've brought in, oh, so this particular one, Peaches and Cream, it's a sort of like a, a duo-coloured um, plant, sort of more Peaches and Cream, kind of a bit of apricotty and a bit creamy at the end. Yeah. So it's, um, it, it really is a lovely shrub. And really good, good foliage too. Good foliage. It very does. reliable. Yeah, it is. And it has, um, yeah, very sort of brightish green, um, typical Grevillea type of foliage, I suppose. And the other one is uh, Grevillea Scarlet Sprite, which is one of the uh, Rosemarini Folia 
uh, grevilleas, which, as the name suggests, has rosemary-like foliage. But don't um, use it on the lamb roast. Don't, no, <laughs> no, no it's, it's not for you. It's for the birds. Um, and this one is a, a very – it's not only a dense shrub, but, you know, it'll also get to around one and a half, two metres high and wide. Um, but it's dense and it's the it's thorny. Well, it's prickly. The leaves are prickly, I so not not overly. This variety so much when I went to Tarango <laughs> yeah, when you have to move one hundred yeah. of them. Yeah. I know. Yeah, you end up with yeah. little prickle marks all over yeah. your, yeah. all over yeah. your arms. It's a danger money plant. But that's the for sure. Flower is just it's a beautiful colour red, and the small birds absolutely love it. Yeah, and the other, what's terrific about it is this plant. It'll and it's coming into bud now. Yeah, it's got masses yeah. of flower yeah, buds. Yeah. And it's only a young plant. Yeah, and it'll be covered throughout the whole plant. So not not just on the, the tips of the stem. So that gives little birds not only a safety of either nesting or hopping around in it, but they can feed inside the bush as well. So for me, gardening is all about sharing with the whole lots of critters. So we've got a plant that'll suit the uh, the larger honey-eating birds, which, as we know, can be quite aggressive. And, uh, yes, those wattle birds. Yeah, <laughs> they, can be, they can be pretty aggressive, and, um, and the New Holland honey-eater. Mm. Um, but, of course, they're absolute delight to have around. I mean, we've got um, a couple of pairs of uh, wattle birds at the nursery, and they're going through their... Um, their um what do you call it when they're getting to know each other? Courtship. Courtship. They're going through their courtship <laughs> at the moment. And, and your relationship is? <laughs> Solid, I hope. Oh, it's, it's just so adorable watching them because the male will throw his tail up in the air and fan it out and give a little call and then the female will echo him. So it's kind of like, oh, do you like me? Yes, I like you. Do you like me? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's really adorable. Um, whereas, the yeah, so the scarlet sprite, that's terrific for the for the smaller birds, like the eastern spinebills and, and whatnot. So. So, uh, yeah, so put both in the garden and uh, uh, supply food for every critter, I say. Another grevillea Absolutely. that's really good for little birds that is flowers differently to those two mm-hmm. you brought in is grevillea olivacea. Oh, it yes. flowers on the really old stems on the inside of the shrubs, so the new growth pops up. It's beautiful new growth, you know, olive, what the name suggests. It does look like an olive tree. Yeah. yeah, but the flowers are on the really thick, older stems inside, which is inside, really good because yep. little, the little birds can... Um, they're in there and protected. Them. It's protected yeah. for them. Yeah, I had one. I put one into the garden and it took it took ages for the flowers. I, I put in another plant. And <laughs> another no flowers growing on it. Um, and then all of a sudden they appeared on the really on the old probably maybe three year old hmm. um, growth on it. Okay. So you don't really get to see the flowers so much as what you do with these two that you've brought in. Mm. But it's something that's. You don't, you know, it's a very selfless plant, the Grevillea olivacea. Yeah, you don't I get to enjoy the flowers. Oh, as that's much. true. Yeah, I mean, but it's but good for the birds. Yeah, and Grevillea is such a fantastic group of plants. Yeah. Really high in nectar. Yep. So not only for the birds, for the insects as well, and then of course for the insectivorous critters that come in and eat the insects mm. that are feeding on the nectar. So. And mm-hmm. the peaches and cream often throws out flowers sporadically throughout the year, and flowers more over spring, summer, but. It, you get those flowers, you know, in winter and those cooler months, so that there is a, a constant food source. Yeah. Is it a plant that you use in your plantings? Peaches and, peaches yeah. and cream. Um, peaches and cream, I've had a hit and miss with, mm-hmm. I must yeah. say, over yeah. the years. You know, it'll, it'll, I'll put it in here and there. I have a few in the wild cherry garden, mm-hmm. um, which the owners bought, and they are doing quite well, but maybe it's me. Anybody suggested this? But the beautiful um, Grevillea, um, oh, the big cream one. Um, Moonlight. Oh, Moonlight, yes. Yep. Well, they have gone off. They, they came this size six months ago, 
And I, I think it's all about um, heat and water. The owners um, have been incredibly liberal with their water uh, and they tend to have the money to do that, which is handy. <laughs> um, but they have watered and they are probably up to a metre and a half. Mm. Wow. In That's six good months. Great. That's good I mean, it's mad. But it's the heat and lots mm. of water mm. Mm. I put, and mulch. I put moonlight in a friend's garden and they shot up about, yeah, about a metre within a year or six months or yep. something. The moonlight just went so quickly. Mm. And very similar you know, yeah, in, in so that big, big flower, and, right. and, and they, they really attract those. And birds. they will tend to flower pretty quickly after planting as well. Like you don't have to wait a couple mm. of years for them to flower. Too. Oh, all these impatient gardeners, I don't. Yeah, we are yeah. all impatient. You've got to try and sell it to people somehow, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's so many. I, I tell people it gives them something to live for. <laughs> well, that's if they've got to wait, you know, it's mm. yeah. I, 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 it does pra- makes you practice patience. Yeah, gardening. and look, looking back is always it. It always seems to me like it was only yesterday. It's mm. when you're looking forward and saying it might take two or three years to flower and people go oh really mm. but when you look back you think oh was that only two or three years yeah. ago you know and so I think we have to have I'd like to encourage people to have a slow gardening sense yes um, I mean it's lovely to have something grows fast I know yes. and I, I don't have an issue with that and I often have a spot where I need to screen something quickly or whatever um, but I actually like planting things that I can watch slowly do their mm. thing. Mm. I'm trying to encourage more people to plant hue and pines for that very reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. But yeah, and, and it is one of the issues in horticulture too, I think, in, in the nursery trade particularly. Um, a lot of plants get left out because they have this characteristic mm. of not doing something quickly in a mm. pot. Mm. Um, and you can have the biggest pictorial label in the world, but if it has a flower sitting on it, yep. that will sell it. Whereas yep. if it doesn't have a flower sitting on it, you have to sell it. Yes. Um, and so a lot of nurseries won't even bother doing that anymore. Mm. So it's, it's getting to the point where, yeah, I think we need to have a bit of a backlash to the, to the quick and, 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 you know, immediacy of certain things. Um, and that excitement though, because, um, I, I planted a macadamia integrifolia yeah. many years ago in Christmas Hills. What was I thinking? But anyway, <laughs> I thought, yeah, this will be great. And uh, what are we talking about? Eight, nine years later, yeah. I'm sort of walking around the garden. It's looking at it's two metres high. And I, what's that? And the excitement. Yeah. Yeah, I just was so absolutely over, over the moon. Yeah, the I excitement can be completely out of, uh, out of kilter with the actual beauty. It's Sometimes <laughs> it's just the fact you've waited so long. Well, I can tell you Hamish was not, you know. And I got look, a text straight away, can we didn't yeah, I? Yeah, <laughs> can we get I think 30, I think, 30 nuts. And, That's um, so exciting. Well, the, the, the kernel, they were tiny. They yeah. weren't that tasty. But, you know, it was just absolutely... But you, so, you suddenly so felt self-sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to the supermarket again. Yeah, that's right. I'll never have to buy that again because <laughs> yeah. I have my own. Uh, it's one of the questions you get when you work in a retail nursery is how long will it take to grow? Mm. Is it a fast grower? It's like... I'm screening the neighbours. Yeah. Yeah. How long is a piece of string? And, you know, let's try some, you know, um, growing your patience skills here. Uh, I always say to people, look, if you've got problems with the neighbour's kitchen window looking in your bathroom one, just walk backwards and forwards naked a few times. They'll stop looking. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I think we... They might not. Yeah, well, they might not. Yes, it depends on the neighbour, I suppose. But um, it depends on your physique as well, of course. (laughs) Um, but I think people do get this sense of, and I think that we can blame this on the sort of makeover 
gardening program yep. things that happened oh, for years. Yes. Yeah, where yeah, people could walk in and two days later they had a garden. Yep. And you think, well, you know, that's not encouraging people to be patient. It's not encouraging people to garden in the right ways. It's not it's, good horticulture. It's hopeless horticulture yep. because there's not proper soil preparation. Yep. You know, nothing is done properly. They're overcrowded. Uh, they're, they're overplanted and with no successional scheme in place to... I mean, I don't mind overplanting because we don't want to look at a whole pile of bare ground too long. Mm. Um, but you need to then know what you have to pull out mm-hmm. as you go along to keep the integrity of the garden going so that it doesn't just become this great jumble of nothing. Mm. Um, so, you know, gardening is about skill and we need to encourage people to take their time, uh, enjoy the processes, plant things that take ages. I just put an Illawarra flame tree in my garden to see what's going to happen because I don't know that Macedon is the easiest place to grow yeah. an Illawarra flame tree. Oh, you've got to test yeah. the range yeah. of these plants. Yeah, you do yeah. and I'm doing that and but I did put a big one in. I planted one that's about uh, two and a half, three metres tall because yep. I figured the foliage canopy will be a bit above the frost with any luck. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I've got other things in the garden that I shouldn't have. So, and, and, and I had one sitting in a pot and I thought, you know what, I'm taking that home. Mm. Uh, I just saw the new ones they'd planted down near South Bank. Uh, they took out the Currajongs and they've planted mm. Illawarra flame trees yeah. in their place, which I thought was really odd because mm. the Currajongs were Pretty really much, big. Yeah. The and they way. took them out and I was incensed. But mm. now they've put a whole Polavillawarra flame trees in that road that goes down beside the art centre, and it's going to look stunning in years to come That's because exciting. there's. There's a huge big erythrina growing in the property on the corner of St Kilda Road and whatever that road is, South Bank Boulevard or whatever it is that goes down. Um, and it has brilliant scarlet flowers mm. when it's in bloom. So they've picked up on the scarlet theme. And in years to come, those Illawarras are going to... In fact, I don't know anywhere else where I've seen a concentrated planting of them. Mm. So imagine what they're going to look like. How's the one doing in your garden? Well, it's only gone in a few weeks ago, oh, and, we, okay. and, we, and we haven't actually had, I was saying before the program started, we actually haven't had a proper frost. Mm. Uh, and so uh, my Brugmansias are a massive flower at the moment. Uh, all my Plectranthuses have come through the autumn without a blackened leaf on them. Um, it's really weird. My Iochromas, all the things that I know will get frosted but will come back, mm. um, none of them have been frosted. Mm. Uh, so although we've had some very cold starts to the day, we haven't had a proper frost, mm. touch wood. And um, so my garden's looking verdant and fecund and all those words. <laughs> um, and um, uh, it's amazing to have something like a bright red Brugmansia flowering at the beginning of winter uh, in the garden looking tropical and, and lush. Mm. In a Macedon garden. It doesn't yeah. seem right somehow. Yeah. Crazy. Anyhow, so I don't know how the Illawarra flame tree is going to go, but I don't sort of care. I quite like the idea of trying. And if I succeed, well, then I've got something I can talk about. And if I don't succeed, I've got something I don't need to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it surrounded by other oh, trees? In a quite, so it'll be protected yeah, it's for a while. In a quite protected place in the garden. Yep. I mean, it's got bigger trees and shrubs around it. And certainly where I've planted it in the back garden behind the house, um, the frost rarely gets in there. So mm. it's got to be a really cold winter for the frost mm. to get in there. So I've got a gut feeling it'll probably grow. And whether it ever flowers or not doesn't particularly perturb me. I mean, I will get excited mm. if it does, mm. quite obviously. Throw a party, open champagne, yep. all that stuff. Um, but the foliage is so good on that tree. Yeah. It is just, it's the most wonderful textural quality and it's glossy and it, it's so unnative like Because yeah. uh, we sort of get this idea of na- a native plant being dry and hard and often prickly and, and all that sort of thing. And this thing is lush and tropical and mm. just the most amazing looking tree and you know I've got a Currajong doing well in the garden uh, I know where there's a um, one of those pink flowering brachychitans and I can't remember the name of it with the maple shaped 
leaves yep. is growing down in Gisborne yep. uh, out in the open and it's growing flower it's been there for donkey's years it's uh, it's on the side of an old homestead that the house was pushed down when they widened um, the Calder Freeway. Yeah. Uh, but the brachychiton is still sitting there and looking fantastic yeah. when it comes into yeah. flower. It sheds all its leaves and then it all goes pink. Mm, um, and it's gorgeous. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, and it doesn't worry me. If it doesn't survive, it doesn't survive. I've tried. And that's what it's about. Loretta, did you say you have a, a flame tree in your garden? Um, no, I don't actually. I thought I had. Oh. <laughs> no, I was thinking of the center carpets. Oh, oh yes, oh, which of course is another beautiful well, yeah, thing. The carpets in your art, yeah, that's yeah. and you know I think of them as as brothers. Or yeah, and yeah, they're not yeah. actually because they're in different yeah. plant families. They are, <laughs> but they've got that lushness, yeah. that tropical sort yeah, of feel. Exactly. Mine yeah. has been in maybe seventeen years and it has not flowered, hasn't it? No. Oh. Mm. oh well, so we expect we an invitation to the party. Macadamia <laughs> <laughs> to talk to it. We will come. There will yeah. be fireworks. Yeah. yeah. It does oh, wonderful! I love those sort of trees. And, mm. and yeah. look, I'm perfectly satisfied if the tree grows because the foliage is good. Yes. And exactly. we yep. plant a lot of things that we plant for flowers, and the flowers are there for perhaps um, a month or six weeks on some things. A lot less if it's flowering cherry. Um, and we get all excited when they flower. And mm. a lot of those things have foliage that's completely boring. Yeah. yeah. Like laburnums, they flower for three weeks of the year. Yeah. And I absolutely love them yeah. so, so much. But for the rest of the year, it's, it's a tediously it's a boring, boring plant. plant. <laughs> yeah, and, and a laburnum arch ca- can look, in fact, stunning. Yeah, mm. when flower. it's in flower. Yeah. yeah. For three weeks. Yeah, yeah. And if that. Yeah, uh, I'm not altogether if sure. If you get a really get, windy or wet day, yeah. bang, they're all gone. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. So, but people will still plant them um, yep. because they love that that hit yeah. uh, when it happens. Well, um, that happens with wisterias and lots mm, of other yeah. things. Although wisterias, yeah. when you've got them well grown, can mm. be quite a beautiful sculptural thing. True. So even and and some of them get good, quite good autumn foliage, which laburnums don't even bother with. No. <laughs> they yeah. just like go a mucky yellowy drop. brown yeah. and, <laughs> and yeah. down they go. Yeah. Uh, but a well grown old wisteria. It can actually have character of its oh, own. Yes, definitely. Uh, so it can sort of pay its way in other directions. I, I think, and um, at the moment, I was sitting there eating breakfast the other morning and I said, Look at that. Macadamas? No, I wasn't. <laughs> eating macadamias no. on your muesli. Yeah. <laughs> the girls last night, I was talking about the macadamias last night and my daughters, and they were talking about cooking with macadamias. My daughter said, Oh, I'll come up and pick them and I'll make some. <laughs> You'll make a what? A muffin. <laughs> <laughs> Piece of slice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the wisteria is buttery, buttery golden yellow, mm. and the whole front, the entire front of our house yeah. is wisteria, yeah. and it is just stunning. And you are getting that extra bit. Yeah, and, and some yeah. some cultivars of wisteria do go a yeah. really good yeah. yellow. Yeah. Uh, some don't though, unfortunately. Yeah. You've got Mine's to pick Garnier. your wisteria. Garnier. What is it? Um, it's 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 a white, but mm. with a hint of pink. I've got oh, Kania. Oh, Kania. Yeah, yeah. Oh, which yeah. is probably... Kania. and it's butter uh, yellow. Uh, oh, no, I'm just trying to remember. It's got a Japanese name as yes. well, which we're trying to go back to all of the original cultivar mm. names. Mm. Uh, and I can't remember. It's something Benny, and I can't remember what it is now. Uh, but, yeah, Kania is one of those wisterias that has really good autumn foliage, but I'm actually not so fond of the colour of the flowers because yep. it, it sort of goes greyish fairly quickly. Right. Uh, yeah. There is a richer pink, 
called Honbeni, mm. which is a really quite good clear pink wisteria yes, yeah. uh, and probably the best of the pinks if you're going yep. to plant a pink wisteria. Yep. Uh, but I always wonder about planting pink or white of something when you've got blues and violets because they're such gorgeous colours. Mm. Why do you need them? It's like having white plumbago. Why would you bother? <laughs> 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 yeah, it just doesn't make any sense I to do, me. I do have a thing for pink pea flowers, though. So uh, I think yeah. I would like what, mm. what yeah, the Yeah, has. you probably would. Yeah. I, but yeah. I had that one in the garden at the nursery that was meant to be Shirinoda, which is the clear yeah. white. Yeah. Um, and it turned out to be the one you're talking about. Yep. And eventually I got bored with it, mm. uh, and it was taking over the whole nursery, so yep. it got the chop. Oh. Uh, well, I you have to come and see hang- mine when it's in full yeah, flower. That's, that's oh, it's sensational. It is pretty mm. sensational. Yeah. 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 yeah, lovely things, the old wisteries, as long as you look after them. Well, We've got a caller. Woohoo! Surprise for the caller. <laughs> Good morning to Michael in Forest Hill. Michael. Hello. Hello. You there, Michael? Things no. aren't, things aren't yeah, sad. Wait a little yeah. while. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, no first caller. That's really sad. No. <laughs> this Michael, could be a first, a Michael, program with no callers. Michael, if you're listening, call us back. Mm. I think Liz is going to check if he's still there. No, he's gone. No. Oh, okay. Michael. Never mind. See, they can't even get in between us a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, never mind. <laughs> Loretta, I wanted to get back to you about, because um, we were talking about people wanting everything to to grow instantly and all the rest of it. When you actually create a a design for Mm. a garden, um, do your clients quiz you about the plant list that you intend to plant and whether everything's going to be, you know, Fantastic in 12 months. Uh, Or how do you sell them that some things will need to take time? Um, Look, at this stage, I'm very lucky because they're very trusting and uh, we will always talk about... What, what are your favourites? You know, what's your, your sort of your good list of what you want? So they will say, okay, I want probably three or four things. That's that's about it. I, I recently did a garden and they wanted around this outdoor um, pavilion area a little bit of Mediterranean look, and I just said, they said they wanted olives. So we did this beautiful new olive. Um, olives are that Flavour Master um, Bay, the short one. Uh, Tracleospernum and that Tuscan blue rosemary. That's all they got. And they're all growing brilliantly. But your question is, I mean, do they sort of ask me? Generally, I just tell them what they need. <laughs> good on you. <laughs> and it's really pretty good. Um, outside of that, I mean, the rest of this garden was native uh, and they're, they're delighted with what, what's going on at the moment, apart from what the roos are doing to it. But um, they'll be there next week. <laughs> yeah. I've got to run in next week before they get home and quickly replant. But, um, oh, dear. Yes. No, I, I'm very lucky in that respect. That uh, I suppose they want a little bit of outcome. So you sort of, I'll, I'll let them know in no uncertain terms about what they're going to get. Right. And uh, I think they're very trusting, so I'm, I'm a lucky duck. Yep, you are. Mm. And what, what about when you're designing for, say, a childcare centre or a school? Yep. Do um, we plant lots of bursaria? I guess we've got to keep the kids in yeah, somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do they consider the plant list more closely in that circumstance? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've done a lot of the milia, and the milia, um, Azarac, well, you've got the one without the poisonous um, talking about berries. our berries again, berries, yeah. yeah. So that's um, Yarra Valley Grammar. We did a huge 
amount of those and they have been brilliant and so we are always considering what we're going to plant definitely in the schools but they tend to leave So you don't allow for the natural selection of students? (laughs) (laughs) That is brutal, Stephen. Very brutal, very brutal. Uh, Sorry. Okay, we we do need to get to a couple of callers. We've got... uh, Liz from Preston. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, good to hear you. Um, I'm just wishing to know my usual stupid Daphne questions. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm still trying to get one to really take after years and years. Well, I'm, you know, determined to get it in. Um, I've got two, and I was late in getting it into the ground because the weather was so weird this year. Um, is it too late to try and put them in the garden now? No. No, perfectly fine to plant Daphne now. Um, make sure you put them in a spot that does drain reasonably well because if they do get wet at any time, Daphne's resent wet feet, so you need to have a spot that's well drained. Uh, I think they require more sun than most people give them credit for, so I wouldn't put them in a shady or semi-shaded aspect. I'd put them in a spot where they get at least half the day's sun, uh, but I would keep their roots well mulched so okay. that their roots are cool. Um, uh, I think a lot of the problems people have with Daphne's, you know, they get virus, I know, and that's what knocks them over half the time. But a lot of them are mollycoddled too much, and I think they need to be out in the open. Uh, if you can plant them somewhere where they've got some rocks and things that their roots can go down underneath, they're really happy to do that, because uh, that's what they do in the wild. Um, so, you know, if you had a large rock garden or you had a rock edge around a garden bed or something like that, plant them not too far away from the rocks, and they'll get their roots down under the rocks. Um, and certainly don't plant a Daphne back where you've lost one to virus. Right. I've got the Perfume Princess one, which is supposed to be a little bit more hardy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it does say it tolerates sun. Yeah. I've got my garden, the, where I'd like to put it is a northern aspect. Is that going to be yeah. a bit too hot? No, it won't be, uh, as long as the roots are cool. Right. So as long as they're mulched or they can get their roots down under rocks, Daphne's will cope with a fairly open, sunny aspect. Right. Oh, that's good then. All, All right. I'll give it a shot, this, another shot. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Elizabeth. And we'll go to Jill in East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Um, the Herb Society's meeting on Thursday at Room 10 in <laughs> Burnley Horticultural College. And it's our 39th birthday. We started in 2000. And sorry, 19 something or other. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your maths is, is lacking a little bit. 80. Yeah. And um, June Valentine's going to do a presentation on eucalyptus, you know, all its uses. That'll be fun. We always have a nice supper. We have a raffle. And we have plants for sale, especially some unusual herbs. So. That should be nice. So that's room 10, Burnley Horticultural in the main building, enter by the steel ramp. And for people who don't know, it's 500 Yarra Boulevard, uh, Melway 45A12. And we start around 7.15. We like people to be there because we like to start promptly. So welcome visitors, $5, and members bring supper. So it's usually a, a bumper herbis, herbal supper with herbal teas and fun because everyone's very welcoming. Good. Excellent, Jill. Thanks, Pam. Okay, Thanks, then. Yeah. Thanks, Jill. Bye. Bye. See you later. Now, Loretta, you also brought in uh, a cutting of something. Oh, well, I went out in the garden this morning 
they're over there in the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> without, right well, well out of your reach whilst yeah. you're wearing your headphones. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, a number of years ago, I think Open Garden was about three three years ago. Yes. Or something yes. like that. And I was just finishing a garden and it was um, with my sisters in tow all being gardeners as we are, uh, we were doing a, a silver and burgundy native theme, mm. which is, is a really easy thing to do. And mm. uh, so what I brought in was the things that I thought, oh, look, they're not growing, nothing's growing. It's, but in actual fact, these are, this is a lovely acacia, which has got some little buds at the mm. end there. Uh, it's acacia um, convey, convey, convenio, convenio, convenio. That's the one. C O N V E Y I. Yeah. And I, we, my partner and I actually call it Blue Boy. I don't know why it got Blue Boy, but anyway, Blue Boy. And uh, it's just, yeah, I know, I know. It could be Blue Girl. Yeah. Could be Blue, no gender. Yes. So. Yes, gender unassigned. (laughs) So in this garden, which has a backdrop actually, which is not blue, but um, of the brachychitin. Um, anyway, we've got the, this one, which is now, they were planted all at about, they were about 500 high. Now they're three metres right. in three years, which I think, and this garden along with this, the Gonus Burgundy, which mm. has that little bit of Burgundy. Um, and then we have also that hibiscus, the hibiscus, that silver grey, mm. the new, that new one has pink flowers. Oh, that's a beautiful it's variety. It's stunning, isn't I it? And it's very, it, and it's quite furry and it's yeah. beautiful, a loginy. Googly eye, such and such. Yes. Something like yes. that. AB, the you pink That's right. <laughs> yeah. Is it one of the allergies? I think it might be the hibiscus. I think it's a hibiscus. Hetrophila or something. Hetrophila. Oh, yeah, okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that's sort of the underplanting. But this garden has just taken off. And, and you, you've got sort of your lovely silver grey, Lamandras, bluey grey, and then the Dianellas, the little Rev, and that type of thing. And the whole garden, thinking it hasn't grown, well, mm-hmm. it's actually grown. And it's becoming, I'm they talking sneak about. It's about. Being patient, it's about going, well, is it growing, is it growing? But getting excited with going, well, actually, that's the form. That's the picture in my head was this beautiful silver and burgundy backdrop of upper story, lower story, which you can with a leptospernum, a lower story, a leptospernum um, prostrate, burgundy. Fantastic, mm. you know, and, and there are actually some um, leucodendrons in there as well uh, with that little beautiful burgundy tops that you get on those. So, yeah, it's, it's a yes, good garden. non-native natives. Yes. <laughs> I was going to bring some in yesterday, but I, left, I forgot them when I left work that. last night. <laughs> <laughs> you get so many people coming going, oh, I've got this beautiful plant, it's a native, they show you a photo. Yeah, it's not Either native. Either leucodendron or leucosperm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or it could be a protea sometimes. Yeah, yeah. or a protea. Yeah, yeah. 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 absolutely. Yeah. Anything yeah. proteaceae that's not Australian yeah. always yeah. seems to get lumped absolutely. in with Australians. Although absolutely. I've got 90 million years ago it was native to Australia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. connected to South Africa. Actually, I can tell you an even worse story about things that are not native that are purported to be. Mm. Um, I went to a, a naturalisation ceremony up in Kyneton a few years ago where a, a Scottish mate of mine was becoming an Aussie. Still doesn't sound like one, but anyhow. <laughs> um, and they were handing out golden diosmas. <gasps> oh! I was horrified. 
Mm. And and what? I actually went up afterwards and, sa- and said to somebody, I don't know whether it was the Lady Mayoress or whoever, somebody I was talking to, and said, you need to know that what you are handing out is a native plant for people to plant in their gardens. Yes. And, I mean, it wasn't all golden osmos. There were some... Nandina Nana? No, <laughs> no, there wasn't, actually, but you could have had your you own McDonald's have. car park. I was going to say, I, maybe I, the ceremony yeah. was sponsored by McDonald's. Yeah, well, it could have been, too. Um, but, yeah, it, they were handing these things out, and I said to my mate, if you pick up one of those golden diosma things, I'll kill you. Grab, <laughs> grab the eucalypt. I don't care what else you grab, but don't take those. They're not natives. Massive faux pas. It was. It was a dreadful faux pas. Yeah. I was horrified. I would be, too. Yeah, so, yes, uh, yes. It, it really got to my horticultural self, and I got really on my high horse mm. about it. But anyhow, uh, you know, these things happen. People I, aren't yeah. doing enough sort of concentrated effort. No, I get on my high horse when a friend gives you, like, a bunch of flowers as a thank you for something, and they know I love natives, and it's a native bunch, but there's leucodendrons all yeah. through it, and the um, it's a beautiful flower, Ceruria, the blushing yeah, oh yeah, bride, the blushing which is bride. South African as yeah. well. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, through gritted teeth. Thank you so much for the thought. Yeah. <laughs> I will remove these as South African flowers out now. Oh, well, you're starting your own form of apartheid by the sounds of it. <laughs> Goodness me. Uh... Well, it's just annoying. People need to know. Yes, well, they do need to know. You're but make if a native gone... bunch, yeah. say it's native from South Africa yeah. or native yeah. from Australia or yeah. native from China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or a mixed bunch. Yes, or a mixed bunch. In which case, if, if it's a mixed yeah. bunch, you can't complain. Or a sclerophyllous bunch. A sclerophyllous. <laughs> that sounds like something you need a cream for. <laughs> Now, I have got a couple more plants if we haven't got anybody yeah, there, and they are up on the Facebook page, so okay, we possibly go. should oh, we mention should. Oh, I want to say quickly, so, Stephen, you've had red berry plants, yeah. and they, you've had white berry plants, and now you have... I have something that's white and sort of orangey. Right. And yeah, yeah, white so it's, it's both in the one. Um, this is a euonymus. Now, euonymuses are another group of plants that are incredibly tough. Um, one or two of them can get slightly weedy, but I've never seen yeah. euonymus go nuts like caprosmas and some of the other mm. weedy things that look similar. This particular one is euonymus fortunii coloratus, um, and it's used a lot in North America and, and England as a uh, roadside verge plant for covering big banks and things because it tends to be a scrambly sort of shrub, um, and so it can sort of waft. And I've actually grown it as an espalier up through a cyclone fence. Uh, and I trim it back to the fence every few yep. years because it gets too heavy and it starts to pull the fence apart. Um, and it's evergreen, but if you get heavy frosts on it, the foliage gets a burgundy stain through it in the winter, which can be quite attractive. Its flowers are small and inconspicuous, although I do notice that the insects quite like it in flower. But when the fruit come on it, it has this dry white berry that splits open and it has these bright orange seeds mm-hmm. that hang inside. And it's really showy. Um, and uh, I've... I don't think I've ever had a seedling come up in the garden at home, uh, but I'm not saying it wouldn't, uh, but it will layer. If the plant's branches hit the ground, uh, it will take root and start a new plant off that way. And my plant of this is on a six-foot-high cyclone fence, and it started as one out of a six-inch pot um, probably 15 years ago, and it's now covering probably 40 feet of cyclone fence. Wow. Uh, So it's covering this huge area. It never gets watered. Uh, it just looks after itself apart from me trimming it back when it gets too heavy. Mm. Um, and so it's one of those sort of indestructible plants. I actually got my original cuttings of this, not quite sure what I'd taken cuttings off, I might add initially, uh, off a plant that was growing up through the lower forks of a desert ash. So it was growing at the feet mm. of a desert ash and its branches had grown up and then they'd flop through the, the lower limbs of the desert mm. ash. So it was this sort of skirt 
around the base oh, wow. of this desert ash. And anybody who's ever had to deal with a desert ash in their garden will know what sort of root system they have. Mm. Um, you know, almost nothing will grow well under a desert ash. Uh, but this euonymus was thriving in there. Uh, I've seen it growing in gardens up in Rutherglen. I've seen it in areas that are, you know, can have quite tough climates, mm-hmm. uh, and it survives really well. But it is a big, bulky plant, so unless you're espaluring it or using it for a certain purpose, it will take up an enormous amount of room, mm-hmm. uh, potentially. Yeah. Uh, but it's very prunable, uh, and certainly if you did have a big, horrible clay bank or something, it could actually be quite a useful plant to sort of screen and cover that. Um, so Euonymus fortunii coloratus, which is quite a mouthful. So that's my penultimate plant. <laughs> well, thank you for that. We'll go to our next caller. Good morning to Liz in Mount Eliza. Good morning. Um, composting. We are building a compost bay mm-hmm. with the three Three pits, yep. Excellent. We back onto a reserve, Mm -hmm. and hence we've got incredibly aggressive ivy, you name it, it's out there, Mm -hmm. you can't stop it coming in. So we were wondering um, should we lift the compost bay but put a floor on? No, I wouldn't put a floor in it because then you, you are actually in some ways you're um, breaking the cycle yes you yeah, need to have yeah, it in contact with soil so that the microorganisms and the worms and, the worms and everything can move yeah, up and down that's what we thought so I had um, I had a very large low compost there mm-hmm. I've had it there for about six years and um, I was reading through uh, one of the books I've got here by Tim Bursell who said number one rule never ever put your compost under a pine tree mm. um, which ours is under so we thought, <laughs> uh, not knowing that which is why nothing's ever broken down mm. so when we dug it out um, uh, the last couple of days what we've noticed is there's an unbelievable amount of um, roots yeah. and stuff coming up it will and any tree that's nearby will take advantage of uh, the organic material you've got there and it will send mm. roots up into it uh, it doesn't sound like the most idyllic place to start a compost uh, unfortunately thing. it's the only place all right can you take the tree place. down well um, do you want to go in for the council for me because Nigel won't talk to me anymore oh. from the council for, yes for I've taking had, down a pine tree uh, I've had with with I've there's no logic in it in councils there's just no logic in them Oh, you've, so, you've at least worked that out. Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah, if, if ever yeah. there was a good use for glyphosate, Liz, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, a bit look, of injection. I, this tree would be, um, I'm not good on the old metres, but it would be, oh, I don't know, 50 feet high. It's, uh, it's old, it's huge. Mm. It kills everything in the reserve that we've tried to plant. Um, and they just come out and look at it gormlessly and say, it's healthy, we're not doing anything. Mm. Um, and it ruins most of the back garden. Mm. So, yeah, um, look, although although I have managed to make the garden look very nice, I've got salvias and stuff like that. Yeah. But look, the only thing you can do if you're going to have a compost heap where it's going to get infested by tree roots, then you're going to have to get quite. Um, regular in turning your compost yes. and moving yeah. it from one pit to the next pit to discourage the roots from taking it up. Yeah. So okay. you, there's going to be a lot more work in creating a compost heap in the situation you've got unless the tree has an accident. Well, we've tried... To, oh, I'm sorry, no, not we. <laughs> we, never we. Yeah. The tree had an accident about 
six years, it's just nothing. It does nothing. <laughs> you can, you try, we can't nuke the thing. We can't nuke it. Yeah. Uh, oh, From experience, Liz glyphosate does work. Injected yeah. into it. Just we a, did. Oh, we did. That's yeah, because I know that somebody view. did that down at Lawn to some of the pine trees along the... the yeah, so they could get their view the back. Beak, yeah, so that they could get yeah. their, their view back. And one or two of the trees died, but one just had several limbs that died out of the tree and the rest mm. of the tree stayed healthy. It seemed to sort of generate exactly up what happened. That's what happened with us. Two limbs died, and if anything, it sort of went yum-yum. <laughs> well, it so. sounds like a potential hazard, so maybe you could take it from an OHS perspective with the um, oh, try. council. Yeah, oh, but I'm it does sound to me like if it's go. a big old pine tree growing in a reserve, it shouldn't be there anyway. Yes. Um, yes. And the council mm-hmm. should take responsibility for something like that. Yes. Um, um, and if you can't kill it with uh, your nefarious nighttime uh, escapades, yes. um, uh, then you're going to have to work with it. Uh, and the only way you're going to do that is just to keep turning your compost regularly. Yes. So it, put the lid on it, put the, we've got a lid now on it, mm-hmm. oh, we will have, and so just keep it touching the earth. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you've got to keep it touching the earth, but you'll have yeah. to keep moving it backwards and forwards between the three pits. And it'll break yeah. down quicker if you keep it moving as well. Well, that's true too. Yeah. If you turn it over regularly, it does break yeah. down faster. Okay. Um, so that's about the only thing you can do. Is it getting plenty of light? Yes, yes. It's um, everything else I manage in, in the garden, and I've got a veggie garden, you would... Um, I'm not supposed to do it with veggie gardens either, but I do because it's at the back near the reserve, so that's the only area I've got for planting. The veggie patches are fine Mm -hmm. because I'm managing them all the time. They're very high. They're quite high up so I don't have to bend down. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're going going okay. It was the compost Tim Bursal, the book he's got, said that when it rains, it's the rain the eucalypt through the rain or the pine through the yeah, rain. I'm not so sure that has a huge impact, I have to say, because I compost under large gum trees or near large gum trees. Yeah. Um, and I think it's more a matter of getting the balance of your um, uh, constituents of right. your compost yeah. right and the adequate amount of moisture in your compost because it's about water in your compost that will help to rot it down. Um, So you need to keep enough water in your compost. I sometimes in the summer when it's really dry I poke a hose into the middle of my compost heap and just turn it on very low low pressure and just let moisture trickle out into the middle of the compost heap Uh, and I do that fairly frequently Um, and I turn over quite a hell of a pile of compost in my garden, I'll tell you that uh, and it's not in the ideal position, it doesn't get as much sun as it should and there's all sorts of reasons why my compost shouldn't work all that well but it does work reasonably well You just work on it harder, yeah Yeah. Okay. Well thank you for that, that's good because my husband was going to build a sort of a little platform and we're thinking well It'll probably rot away, and then well, yeah, it will. Yeah, if you put a timber will. platform yeah. in, it will. It yeah. will rot away, and yeah. surprisingly quickly too, because the the things within your compost are going to start rotting the timber as well yeah, as the compost. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you once again. Good luck with that. And we have a long distance caller. Good morning, Cameron from Adelaide. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I've spent the last year in the UK. Um, I've been listening to the podcast. Today is actually the first day I've listened live to the show. Oh, right. Right. Well done. Um, well, welcome. Yeah, it's been really good. Oh, thank you. Um, and, yeah, we're based, my girlfriend and I were in Oxford for the last year. And actually, I just want to talk about the gardens there. They're really interesting because we've got the university and there's all the colleges, and the colleges have, most of them have gardens. Some of them are quite, uh, quite large and 
was quite eye-opening, actually. I didn't expect to see eucalypts and um, bananas and ferns and all sorts of things. I don't know if any of you have been to any of those uh, college gardens. Is that in Adelaide or here in Melbourne? No, in Oxford, in the UK. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, sorry. The phone oh, went a bit sorry. crunchy when you said where, you, oh, okay. where you're at. Yeah, sorry. so, yeah, we couldn't quite pick it. Mm. It's actually it started raining here. I'm not sure if that's oh, right. okay. sitting out on the veranda. Yep. Yeah, so the, the college gardens in, in Oxford were really quite interesting. Good. Um, and and actually, we about, I've just come back to Adelaide, but one month ago, we went to the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, in Scotland. Mm, that's an amazing was, place. Oh, they were incredible. They were mm. really impressive and so well looked after. Um, you know, they were obviously very passionate. Yeah, um, well, Edinburgh is still one of the world's um, uh, leading research botanic gardens too, so lots of things are going on in Edinburgh. Um, uh, right, OK. It tends yeah. to be hidden behind Kew a wee bit because Kew tends to get all of the, the PR, but Edinburgh is a really important botanic gardens. Mm. Yeah, so I went to Kew in winter, and um, I wasn't that impressed, actually. Well, Kew's got a lot of big spaces, uh, yeah. you know, huge big stretches of lawn with specimen trees and stuff in it, whereas Edinburgh's a much more concentrated garden. Yes, yeah, the Edinburgh's not that, yeah, it's not that large. No. Um, now, Cameron, yeah? uh, you wanted to ask about gardens in Melbourne? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're going to drive up to Cairns um, in about a month time and then on the way back you know come down the east coast and I wanted to swing through Victoria on the way back and I was wondering during the middle of winter uh, are there any gardens you recommended going to? I was thinking of going to the Botanic Garden. Well you certainly should do the Melbourne Botanic Gardens it's always worth a visit. Uh, The Cranbourne Botanic Gardens is also a fantastic uh, resource and you should make an effort to go to Cranbourne. you could go up into the Dandenongs to the annex of the Botanic Gardens up there, which used to always be known as the Rhododendron Gardens and is now called something else. Uh, okay. And that would be well, worthwhile. Cloud Hill would be fantastic. Cloud Hill Gardens would be good up in the Dandenongs. What about Mount Macedon? There's not a lot of gardens open during the winter terribly much. Uh, Forest Glade would be open, uh, which is a large mm-hmm. uh, hill station uh, garden on about 10 acres or so. So Forest Glade would be one of the few gardens that you're likely to have open on Mount Macedon at that time of the year. Um, But there's quite a few gardens of of the public sort. I mean, and they're sort of offbeat ones that um, uh, people don't sort of think of, like Maranoa Gardens. Mm, Maranoa's beautiful native garden. Yeah, fantastic Australian native garden right in the middle of leafy eastern Melbourne suburbia. Uh, okay. So Maranoa is definitely worth and, it. And some of our National Trust gardens, like Rip and Lee. Yeah, Rip and Lee is always worth a visit. Um, And some of the small... um, Suburban City Botanic Gardens. I mean, Williamstown Botanic Gardens is always worth a visit. And Geelong. Geelong is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The Geelong Botanic Gardens yeah. is really good. Um, and if you happen to be out in the country, I mean, places like Dalesford, uh, the Botanic Gardens in Dalesford are fantastic. Bendigo and Ballarat. Bendigo and Ballarat both have great botanic gardens. Yep. And I was just going to say, also worth hopping onto the Open Gardens Victoria website and seeing if there's a garden they're, they're open. Oh, they're the moment. Yeah, they closed, closed for, during for the winter. winter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, until oh, September. Yeah. So, um, but that should that. that should keep you entertained and occupied for quite yeah. a while, I would have thought. <laughs> and and we have to go. We are right. running out of time, Cameron. I'm afraid. No problem. All right. Thanks for that. Thanks. That's okay. a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Right. Cheers. Bye. 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 And uh, yes, we certainly have run out of time. Goodness me.
uh, time flies when you're having fun, as always. Um, but we will be back again, of course, uh, 7.30 next weekend. Um, and until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.